Welcome to Money Talks, a series of interviews with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. In this episode, I talk to advertising industry legend Martin Sorrell. After working at Saatchi and Saatchi Group during the 1980s, Sorrell then set up the world's largest advertising and PR group, WPP. Since leaving WPP, Sorrell started yet another business, S4 Capital, focused entirely on digital advertising at a time when digital now accounts for the majority of the world's multi-billion pound global advertising spend. I started by asking Martin Sorrell about the rationale for his new business. Our mission is to create a new model, to build a new advertising marketing services model, because the old one went back to the 1950s, Marion Harper and IPG. Not when I was at WPP or Saatchi's or the Saatchi brothers or Omnicom with their Big Bang in 1985 or, or publicity. It goes back to the 1950s. 70 years it's been operating. TV adverts, posters, newspapers. TV advertisers. All, all the basic stuff. You know, physical newspapers yeah. and yeah, magazines. Yeah, yeah. God, remember them. At physical outdoor sites instead of digital outdoor yeah. sites and, and the like. So what we've seen is a massive switch uh, to online. And our mission is to create that new model and disrupt the old. The second principle is around a model that we call the Holy Trinity model, which takes data. That's data about how and you and I behave online, what we purchase, what we do. Consented data to get over the privacy hurdle that you and I have consented uh, for use. Use that data together with this, together with signals from the big platforms like Google and Facebook and Amazon and create, produce and distribute creative that appeals to you or I depending on what I'm doing online. So for example, I take Netflix as an example who we work for, uh, and Narcos or Narcos 3 to be precise. We created 1.6 million different executions depending on what consumers are doing. So if Liam likes Manchester United and yep. you're on Good guess. Man, Man United's True London site, that I am. we compare Narcos 3 to a football team or yeah. sports. Uh, if we see you on a website, WSJ, Wall Street Journal website or whatever, we compare Narcos 3 to a business. We watch what your reaction is. We have 1.6 million different executions, probably using about 50 to 70,000 of them. And depending on how you react, we might feed you, serve you another ad mm. that appeals more than the previous one. So it's continuous improvement. It's rather like election advertising, but without an election date, personalization at scale. So it's highly tailored, whereas yeah. what you referred to before, TV, radio, traditional outdoor, is massive. General scattergun, Ma- isn't it? Yes. Not directly. Blunderbuss versus rifle. Exactly yeah, yeah. right. That's exactly a good right. Yeah. You're a Big noise, if I may say so, in the world of global advertising. A little, a little noise. Ob- yeah. Obviously, the Saatchi. My mother thought I was a big noise. <laughs> the Saatchi is a legendary. Why are the Brits so good at this kind of advertising? We think we're good. Creators. Oh, but we are good, aren't we? Yes, but, what uh, is it? but, but I mean, I mean, the Americans think they're good too, and the British and the French think they're good, and the Italians. We do. punch above our weight uh, though in this world, don't um, we? Yes-ish, I would say. I, I, I don't think we can afford to be complacent. I mean, for example. This morning we <coughs> went into technology services and we merged, we call it mergers, we don't do earnouts which create fragmented verticals. We're trying to build, that's our fourth principle, building a unitary company, one PL, no cross-charging. Yeah. But this morning, the company that we brought in, another 400 people, so we're now up to about 6,500 people, based in Bogota and Cali and Medellin. Yeah. So, so we're... we're uh, and the reason I bring that up is that Latin America is a much 
under, I think, appreciated source of creative talent, superb creative mm. talent, particularly in Argentina, I would mm. say, Brazil, Mexico, Colombia as well, but particularly in Argentina. And they're on technical talent, technological talent, huge operations, uh, you know, Mercado Libre, Globan, all examples of South American-based companies, CNIT is a Brazilian company that's going to go public shortly, which will be a competitor to our technology services company. So underestimated. So I think, Liam, yes, we do punch above our weight, but you've got to remember that other parts of the world They're coming. are coming. You know, China is yeah. one, India is another in Asia, the Middle East and Africa will in time. And I, I would, you know, North America obviously is very powerful, both Canada and the United States, but South America, places like Mexico, like Brazil, like Argentina, like Colombia, have really superb creative talent and superb te technological talent. You talked about very um, targeted and advertising there, yes. Sir Martin, and targeted in a sort of iterative way. The more yes. so uh, you, you don't the, produce, the advertisers find out about an individual. You don't produce the perfect solution you know, after three months of bringing right. the agency and the TV commercial. You continually change it. Some people would call this surveillance capitalism. Is there a limit to the extent to which it's morally right, if I may ask you, to target people with adverts well, based, on, based on their private browsing? Well, it, we've now got to a stage where most, if not all, of this is consented. So you and I, as consumers, have to go through a process which is totally legitimate of A, knowing what we're letting ourselves in for, and be consenting for that to be the case. So what, you, what you've now got is, you know, Google made a decision, actually it's well over a year ago, but it'll take another two years to be implemented because they laid the implementation of nixing, canceling third-party cookies. These, were, these mm. were devices that trawled the net, that got mm. information on you and I, often without our knowledge. Mm. I mean, even I, who meant to be somewhat of an expert in this, found, found cases where my data was being used without my knowledge. So we're now we're getting to the stage, not perfect yet, yeah. but we will get to the stage where you and I consent, and any other consumer, to the use of our data. We might even be in a position where we're asked whether we want to sell our data. Yeah. You know, there's a great article in the FT, which uh, I remember a year or so ago, a guy going to work on a bus, and he was sitting on the top, top deck of the bus, and he sold his information, sold sufficient amount of information to pay for his bus Mm. bus journey or his, his commuting. And, you know, I so say we may well get to that as well, but this has really created a tremendous amount of uncertainty and driven the growth of our data and analytics practice, one of our, one of our practices, because uh, clients have first-party data. For, the definition of first-party data is data that you and I have consented to give Procter & Gamble, Unilever, a bank or whatever it happens to be, to use and it's knowledge of the purchases that we've made of their products, and they use that data with our consent mm. to try and work out what are the sort of things that appeal to us at a psychological, emotional, or practical, or physical level. And we're developing content that does that. My example of Netflix, whether you're a United supporter or a, a business follower, is really an attempt to understand you more as a consumer and understand what motivates you in terms of your media habits and your... Is there your a limit to this process? Doesn't it get a little bit creepy after a while? Well, I mean, it was creepy 
Um, when you might say fact, something in your in kitchen, fact, in, Alexa picks it up, and no, suddenly no. the subject of your conversation it appears on your laptop, offering you well, and, and, to and buy I a pair of carpet slippers or something. The, the, and the interesting thing is that both in the West, because of the regulatory pressure that Google and Facebook and Amazon have been put under, and in the East, as President Xi puts pressure on, on Alibaba and Tencent and TikTok, I mean, both the, Chinese the, the execution, yeah. actually somebody who works with me pointed out, you know, that, that he can control through his Apple phone how much his kids, or kid in this case, plays gaming. You yeah. know, you can control yeah. that as a parent. In China, the, it's the, the state that is controlling it. Right. So the result is the same, you know, a maximum, maybe if you decide your, your kid is only going to... The source of gonna, gonna play, is somewhat different. Is, yes, yeah, <laughs> and the execution... Uh, is somewhat different. So, no, look, you're right, it did become creepy, uh, but I think now the regulation or regulatory framework is now being put in place where the platforms behave relatively responsibly. I mean, it's, there are still issues that have to be ironed out. And, you know, Google's decision, actually, I think was a really smart one to, to, to get rid of third-party cookies which they took of their own initiative, because I think they saw the regulatory they, pressure they in saw Australia. They the wind was blowing, so... They, they were worried about Canada, they were yeah. worried about France, and they thought they would preempt it. Yeah. So, and the net result of it all is really quite interesting, because when, you, when it all sorts through the system, and in two or three years' time, when third-party cookies are dead, and we have a cookie-less world, what it means is that the sources of data for personalization at scale, as we just discussed, become two. First-party data, which clients control, yeah. consented data that you and I consented to use of, and we know where it's going. And secondly, the signals from the platforms, which you know, Amazon, Google, Facebook will see where you, you what, are, where, sort of what, you, what, what you would like, right, yeah. etc. Yeah, but, yeah. but again, you've consented to do it, because yeah. Apple have taken the same view. So two of the leading companies, one a hardware company and one a platform, have, have, have sort of set the standards. GDPR here in Europe, um, I was on a call... Uh, the general with, data protection requirement. Yes. I was on a call with Vestager, who's the, the, the commissioner in Brussels, and um, somebody asked whether that was put in to limit the power of the platform. She said it wasn't... The original intention of GDPR was not to do that, which I think... I, I don't think is quite accurate, if I put it that way. <laughs> I think it was done to do yeah. that, but it had the effect, it had the perverse effect, the law of unintended consequences, of limiting the growth and power of the medium-sized platforms and the smaller ones that were intended to, comp to compete. So a lot of those American platforms that yeah. wanted to come to Europe didn't do so because they said bureaucracy was too great. And, the and only the them. really big players could cope with the bureaucracy and yeah. the regulation. The irony so the was... the regulation it... actually stymied competition exactly. rather than promoting competition. Exactly, and I think... That is a problem that the regulators are going to have to deal with. And I think in the regulatory area, I think the net result of this will be that the platforms, the big six that I mentioned, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Tencent, Alibaba, TikTok, will not grow through acquisition. You may well see some deconsolidation. In fact, we've already seen that with Ant Financial and Alibaba in China. I don't think they'll get broken up here. If they did get broken up, by the way, it would make the ecosystem even more complex, which is good for us because 
It means that we can be in a position to advise on more alternatives, but I think it will limit the ability of those big companies to grow through deals, through acquisition. You're, you're a student of history, Sir Martin. How fair is it to compare these huge tech companies with the huge... Oil companies. Or... Oil companies, the big combinations, if you like, in the Gilded Age of America. It took um, Theodore Roosevelt to come along with his trust-busting instincts. You know, Republican president... Don't you think sometimes to make capitalism work, we have to kick it in the shins? Don't you think these companies are too big now, too powerful? I, I, I don't, but I have to admit I have a vested you interest. You do? Invested because we, we work together with them very closely. I, I think the pressures that they're under, whether it be regulatory pressures, public opinion, you know, privacy, brand safety, the political Breach controversy. Breach of copyright, for instance. All those. If you write a book, suddenly it's on Google. Will no, they no, take but it I've, down? No. I've said for years, Liam, that these companies are media companies. And as such, they have the same responsibility yeah. for the accuracy of their content as media companies. In fact, you know, it would go back, I think probably now it's about 10 years. Uh, I used, used to do an interview at Cannes. Uh, on the Friday, my first... The big, the big media festival the big, in, yeah, yeah, in, in France. Yeah, in, in France. And um, the first thing I had, I had Nikesh Arora, who was then at Google. I had somebody from Microsoft, I think, from Yahoo, Facebook. And the first question I was doing, trying to do your job, and the first question I asked them is, are you a media company or a tech company? Because they all said that they were tech companies. I said, no, no, you're not, you're a media company. So I think you're right. Now, when you get to a certain scale, you know, if you get to a trillion dollars, which many of these companies have already gone through that, that two trillion and beyond, um, you have certain responsibilities. With power comes responsibility. And they have done that. Again, I mean, this often gets missed uh, in, the, in the heat of the, the argument. But Facebook has taken on, I think last time I checked, about 35,000, 40,000 people to check editorial content. Do they do enough of it, according to some? No, but they're building, they're building safety checks. In. Ben, come on, that's just a SOP, isn't it? The Clinton no, era. No. Well, the Clinton, the Clinton no, era. No, you can't get away with that. Hold I mean, on, a, SOP, a SOP would be a minor department. No, you can't, can't get, you get away with that. That's outrageous. The Clinton, it's not a, the Clinton it's not a SOP. Era, the Clinton era legislation, all the way back to 97, the tech giants were allowed then to say, we're platforms, not publishers. So they're not responsible for what goes up on them. They can't libel people. They don't have the, no, same, but they now, the same expenses no, that media, now, real now, media companies have. If you have. look at the congressional testimony that all the platforms get hauled, hauled through on a regular basis, they all indicate that they have a degree of responsibility. Do they go as far as admitting to be you know, wholeheartedly a media company? Maybe not. But are they... They should be forced to... No. That's the reality. No, but they have, they are, they have responded. I mean, Google, to Facebook and Amazon. <laughs> no, no, that's, 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 I think, a little bit unfair. The other thing you have to remember, you, know, you have to be careful what you wish for, Lynn. If I said to you, you know, out of that 650 billion of media this year, we think something like 55, 60% would be digital. Google will probably be somewhere between... 220, 230, 240 billion of revenue. Facebook will be about 110, 115, 120, and Amazon will be 35 billion. By the way, it'll be an Sounds extra, competitive. Extra, extra 100 billion has gone into the digital media marketplace mm -hmm. this year. Of that, what proportion of that would you say came from small and medium sized businesses? I'm sure a lot of it does. 60 but, to 70 But it's all on Facebook and Google's terms, and they take a big slug of everything. Well, but, but, but 
go back again to the pandemic. I mean, sure, governments interceded with furlough money, with support, and that was really important for survival, you know, taxation, deferral, and the like. But the way that most of the small and medium-sized businesses survived and to some extent prospered in the digital world was how? By using the platforms. You know, Jack Ma, um, you know, he, he's not flavor du jour anymore, whatever the Chinese equivalent of that is. But in his heyday, he basically said Alibaba was the platform for the small entrepreneur in China or the medium-sized entrepreneur that wanted to expand not just in China, but, but beyond. So these platforms, again, I say, be careful what you wish for. And I was on, uh, on a, on a uh, session yesterday in India, and we were talking about this very point. Many of the small and medium-sized businesses in, in India, which are not just economically, but politically really important, have really survived in part, not wholly, but in part through the use of these platforms. So they are an important economic phenomenon, which I think has to be encouraged rather than squashed, as you would like clearly like to know i don't i don't want them squashed i just want us to move on from a, a situation which to me looks a bit like serfdom but anyway we're not going to agree on that so <laughs> s-u-r-f or s-e-r-f <laughs> with an e <laughs> you and i first met when we went to india with then prime minister tony blair you were yeah. on a trade mission yeah. i was a journalist accompanying the trade mission the talk then was very much of global britain yes uh, you know the, the kind of influence the UK has around the world. And, we, not, and we, it was also in the context of China. That's too. right. Not, not as much as we had, but still important. When you hear Boris Johnson talk about global Britain, when you hear um, the government saying that we need to shift towards the yeah. Indo-Pacific basin, etc., yeah. is that real? Is that credible? Well, I believe in Singapore on Thames or Singapore on steroids, if you like, in relation to the Brexit decision. I wasn't in favour of it, but the electorate have spoken. We have to get on with it. And when we came out of Europe, yeah, put the pan pandemic for one the side EU. for a minute. Yeah, we're, we're still came, in Europe. When we came out of, well, we came out of the EU. Well, <laughs> well we're, a, we're a rock off the coast, right? As, when we get the weather like this, it reminds us we are. Uh, but continent, when we came away from continental Europe, um, really, what we had to do was alter the pattern of trade. I was very struck. Last week, I was reading an article that said that we'd gone from being the fifth most important trading partner with Germany to the 11th already by July of this year. So within seven months, we've slipped, in my view. Now. So it means to me, and I was quite vehement about this, that when we came out of Europe, out of, out of continental Europe, what we had to do was shift the pattern more to North and South America and Asia Pacific and MIA, Middle East and Africa, out, yeah, of, yeah, out yeah. of EMEA. Uh, and that was for two reasons. Firstly, because that would be the future of Britain. It would be a sort of new mercantilism, if you like. If you remember when Lee Kuan Yew took Singapore away from Malaysia, everybody said Singapore was going to be finished. Now, it's only today 5 million. I guess when, it, when, when they came away, it was much less than that, maybe 2 million people. But what they've done is successfully rebalanced and reorientated the economy. That we have to do if we're going to be successful after the Brexit. I mean, I mean, Brexit, you know, if this was our sort of growth in GDP pre-Brexit, coming out of coming out of EU has lowered us down here. And in my view, it's going to take us five to 10 years to get back to the track if we do in 
investment in infrastructure, hard and soft, investment in education, investment in reskilling, because globalization has mm. caused havoc with some industries, particularly manufacturing industries in a country like ours. So you have to reorientate the economy. What COVID has done has knocked us off course again. And of course, the government has quite rightly, I'm not saying it was wrong, had to invest vast sums in saving companies, mm. along with the, the, the platforms that we mentioned before, to, to make sure that small and medium-sized businesses survive. This is going to put a colossal burden on the economy. And we saw the beginning of that with the NHI increase. We can all argue whether that's, that's the sure right thing to do, to do yeah. whether it should be income tax more or um, dividends tax has already gone, gone up as a result as well. But, you know, I, I said last week when I was asked, did I agree with the tax increase or the increase in that way? I said, it's cloud cuckoo land to believe that you can go through the pandemic and the fiscal and monetary stimulus that the government put in place quite rightly without there being, I said, the upper reaches of society are going to have to pay more in income tax, capital gains tax, corporation tax, whatever it is, to rebalance the economy. And you support that? Yeah, well, I, I support it because I think you have to do that. Mm. You, you can't carry on spending like a drunken sailor mm. without there being you know, a day of reckoning. That, of course, has exacerbated the problems around Brexit. I mean, some of the supply-side shortages we're seeing now, whether it be lorry drivers, uh, you know, delivery dates. I mean, mm. I've heard in many sectors... It's a global phenomenon, though, isn't it? Well, I think it's particularly difficult here mm. post-Brexit. I mean, I've talked to several people whose sources of supply were from continental Europe, and they're having to wait six months, whereas before maybe they, they waited... One month. It may be that you're right, and it will even itself out over time. But I think it will take time. So it's made, it's made the pandemic has made the issues surrounding Brexit, you know, papered over them for a bit, but it has made them, I think, even more extreme. So I think it is going to be quite difficult in the UK. I mean, if you're asking me about the prospects of the UK economy, I am not pessimistic. I think I'm realistic that in the short to medium term, it's going to be quite difficult. Uh, because layered on top of the pandemic are the, the restructuring that we have to do around Brexit. And I talked about infrastructure investment, education recently, and that all takes money and resources, not just government resources, but private resources too, because there has to be a partnership to do it. So as I look at S4 and its development, you know, we're 70% North and South America, we're 20% Amir and we're 10% Asia, we want to be 40, 20, 40. Why is that? Well, we have to be big in, in, in EMEA because France, Germany, Italy and Spain are two and a half, three and a half trillion dollar economies. But the real growth in the future, in my view, from a global point of view, going back to your question about India and China and the Cameron and Osborne and its importance, they are still very important. The, the gap or the fracturing of the relationship between the US and China, which started under uh, President Obama, progressed under President Trump and is staying the same under President Biden, throws up tremendous commercial issues for companies who are looking at world trade when China is the second largest economy now and will be the largest economy on the planet, whether America likes it or we like it or not. So, for example, when, when the Prime Minister depends, decides to get together with the US 
and Australia in relation to a nuclear submarine fleet. The, the AUKUS Convention. Well, when we, when we do that, of course, there are repercussions as a result of that. And they're, they're political and, and therefore economic. So it's very, very difficult. Uh, I think it will be very, very difficult to expand in China and you ignore it at your peril because of its size and its scope. Two final really short questions. I don't, I don't do short answers. Short answers. <laughs> It's a polite way of saying shut up. <laughs> What's your biggest regret in business? Um, well, my biggest regret that I will admit to publicly um, was in 1989 when we did the Ogilvy deal, so-called hostile, although it was only hostile to the so CEO. This is when a young upstart took over one of the most pucker Well, we, we did JWT in, in 87 and we, we did Ogilvy, in, if I can put, use the word did, in, in 89. And, and I, I used to fund it so, so JWT was half debt, half equity, and That's Jay Walter Thompson. Jay Walter Thompson and Ogilvy was was half debt and half convertible preferred. And I remember a very, very uh, good fund manager at the Prue said to me as we were doing the roadshow for the, it was a rights issue of convertible preferred. He said to me, Mark, tapped me on the shoulder, and said, Martin, anything you can do with the convertible, you should do with equity. And in those days, uh, a convertible was not taxed deductible, and it was a 7.4 net. So gross, grossing it up, it was about 10%. So it was a pretty heavy burden. And of course, we had to restructure the business. We did. We, we completed the, the, the acquisition of Ogilvy in 89. And by 92, when the recession came, we had to restructure the business. So that would be my biggest so, public... So in a nutshell, what, what was... I, sc I screwed up. You bought it... For too high a price? No, 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 no. The, the gearing was wrong. Okay. So, so the, I think the deal was a good deal. I think, you know, too much debt, not enough equity. Exactly. Yeah. And, and well, it was quasi debt or pseudo debt because we had the debt and we covered. By the way, in the case of J. Walter Thompson, we found that building. You remember, the the board were told by Morgan Stanley that the building in Japan was worth thirty million dollars, and it was actually we sold it for two hundred and three million dollars and we paid 525 million for the company nice business i think i think you're obfuscating your regret behind this kind of wall of technicality no 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 not wall of technicality. no i screwed up i admit it i, I sort of follow <laughs> and how about you what are you most proud of in business well it's very difficult you know my my, I, my father died in uh, 1989 and so you know i guess the things that he saw he was into electronics wasn't he he was a, a radio and electrical retailer yeah. that's a posh Description electronics. He I'll was a, he was a retailer, yeah. and um, so I think probably the things I'm most proud of are the things that he saw whilst he was alive. My mother died uh, a few years later, or many years later. She saw more, but I would say you know because I had a close relationship with him. I think I'm probably proudest of the things that he saw, which was basically JWT and Ogilvy. He died on July the 1st, 89, just after we completed Ogilvy. So he didn't see the debacle that was caused by the convertible preferred, although he would have been very supportive and he was always very supportive of everything I did. So Martin Sorrell, thanks for Thank appearing. Thank you, Liam. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot for listening to Money Talks with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. If you've enjoyed this episode, do please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube or wherever you're listening. Please do subscribe to this podcast and also check out my daily television show on the money at 1pm Monday to Friday on GB News or via the GB News app. GB News. 
Britain's News Channel.